Thank you so much. All right, could we all stand right now? Thank you. Merry almost Christmas, everyone. And I hope you have that Christmas spirit. You have that joy. Uh, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to answer me truthfully, okay? You know what the question is. You know what the answer is, right? I'm going to ask, you know what time it is, and you're going to say, truthfully, it's what? <laughs> okay. All right. We don't have any questions today, okay? So I thought we could do this for a couple minutes and just kind of just be merry with one another. Hug somebody, love somebody, encourage somebody. But do you know what time it is? Okay, you know what to do. Let's do that right now. Can we do that? Let's go around and share the love of Christ. Amen. All right, all right. We'll do a quick happy family and then come back. And then afterwards, after the service, continue with the happy family time, please. Amen. You can be seated. You, don't, you guys don't have to stand. <laughs> I have nothing else for you except for the Word of God. All right, would you take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're, we're going to do Philippians today, I promise. And so Philippians chapter 2, it's actually one of my favorite passages in all Scripture. And so I'm really excited to get into this. There's going to be a lot of stuff here. And so we want to look at the Word of God uh, this morning. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, let me begin by a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And oh, how it speaks to us where we live, where we are. And Father, I pray that you'd meet us just where we are, whether we're uh, excited and motivated or whether we're apathetic and uh, whether we're going through crisis in our lives. Father, we pray that your word would do its magical work in us, that it would do surgery in our lives. And Father, we pray that um, we would be the better for it. We thank you for everything that you're going to do. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Philippians chapter 2 uh, we've been talking about the theme of joy, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And we've been studying, right, that if you have Jesus, you have everything. That you're loaded with spiritual blessings. That you're filled with spiritual benefits. Here, though, in Philippians 2, Paul uses rhetorical language to describe the blessings and benefits of being a Christian. In verse 1, it says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from Christ's love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And I want you to notice that Paul is listing all you have as a Christian, and he's doing it rhetorically by saying, of course you do. Basically, he's saying that if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, well, of course you have confidence from your union with Jesus Christ. Hey, would you indulge me for a moment? Would you look to the person on your right, and would you say, I have been born into God's family? Would you say it with meaning? Can you say it right now? I have... <laughs> yes, you don't have to do it in unison. That sounds good. That sounds good. Did you know that? Let's celebrate that, right? Because of Jesus, I'm an heir of the riches of heaven. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places, it's mine because of what I have in Christ, right? And he says, and he goes on, if you have any comfort from Christ's love, well, of course, you have consolation of being loved by Jesus. Would you turn to the person on the other side? And would you say, I have it, an intimate relationship with Jesus? Would you say that right now? <laughs> this is good, not awkward at all, right? Right? Where you have that relationship with Jesus, where you can boldly enter to the throne of grace and you can meet King Jesus because he is your Lord and your Savior and you can petition him 
with whatever you need. You can ask, you can seek, you can knock, and all those things will be answered for you. That is a blessing in Christ. And Paul continues, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, of course you do. You share in the closeness with the Spirit. Can you look to a person that you haven't talked to yet, and can you say, I have the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit? Can you say that? That's good. I hear one voice. It's so loud. I don't know who it is, but it's awesome. Okay? And that is so true, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is our parakletos. He is our empowerer, our motivator. And where he guides us, he always provides for us. We have that as a benefit of knowing Jesus Christ, right? And he continues... He says, if any tenderness or compassion, of course you possess the Christ-like, excuse me, qualities and virtues of being with Christ. Okay, one more person. Look to the person, you know, uh, and say, I have the ability to produce spiritual fruit. Last one, I promise. I have the ability to produce spiritual fruit. Thank you. You guys are great. Thank you. Right? And again, it's this idea of having those virtues and qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We have all that tenderness, all that compassion in Christ. And so if you have Jesus Christ, you have this amazing reservoir of spiritual blessings. You have this awesome repository of spiritual benefits. And Paul is saying if you have this, and of course you have all this at your disposal, Verse 2, he says, then make my joy complete. Now, you might say, wait a minute. What do you mean? I thought we just talked about complete joy, right? Confidence in Jesus, comfort from Jesus, closeness with the Holy Spirit, compassion of God in my life. I mean, what more is there? I thought that would be complete joy. Me plus Jesus equals joy. Isn't that right? I mean, is there more to it? Let's continue reading. Verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, when I was a little kid, Kristen kind of shared, I had no idea that she wore a back brace. She had scoliosis, okay? When I was a kid... I remember, uh, you know, going to Sunday school, and I'm really old, okay? And so I remember we used to sing archaic songs. Have you ever heard of the song, Jesus and Others and You? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Wow, not even the older people know that song, okay? All right, so there was this song, and it was always sung in my Sunday school. Whenever we did special music, there was one of our teachers. His name is Billy, and he was an older man, an elderly man with a beautiful voice. And he would always sing it old-timey, okay? So we would sit there. And he had a beautiful voice, but he had a style that we just couldn't, it just, it didn't resonate with us, and it didn't really kind of do it. it. He used to sing it like this. Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others and you, in the life of each girl and each boy. J is for Jesus, he has first place. Always for others you meet face to face. You, why is for you in whatever you do? Put yourself last and spell joy. No, yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to clap. All right, all right. 
You guys are patronizing me. I know you are, okay? And although this song is archaic, the truth is timeless because this is absolutely necessary for joy. And just like the song, it's a way to having complete joy that we must consider others more than ourselves. You see, when we consume all of our spiritual blessing and benefits on ourselves, we make Christianity all about me. And when we stockpile all those blessings and we hoard up all those benefits, we become, verse 3, selfishly ambitious and vainly conceited. And we begin to think that the reservoir of Christ's riches were meant for me to selfishly consume on myself. We become self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-indulgent. And you know, these gifts, these riches were never meant for that. Philippians teaches us the solution. Jesus, others, you. First, Jesus, right? Philippians 1, we looked at it, right? In verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. And so we live for Christ. We pursue Christ. We follow hard after Christ. Number two, then it's others. Chapter two and verse three, but in humility, consider others. Then we focus on others. We put our attention on others more than we do ourselves. And then lastly, it's you. Chapter two and verse three, consider others better. And that word is not the right, there's a better term than better, okay? Because a lot of times we read that and we think, what, you're better than me, right? Or I'm better than you. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about quality. The better word is more. Consider others more than yourselves, right? You do that, Jesus, then others, then you, and you'll have joy. You see, but what does that look like? And this is what's interesting. We've got to understand this. What does that look like? You know, uh, the other day I was at a missions conference, and they ended the missions conference with body worship. And I love body worship. Do you guys know what body worship is? It's choreographed worship, right, dance to, to worship music. And I love it. And the reason I think I love it is because I cannot dance. That is not one gift that God has given me. And when I see people do this or do this, I, I can't do it, but I'm just so in awe, right? I've always wanted to, that was one of my dreams, to be able to dance. But alas, God didn't give that to me. And so I'm okay with that, but I love watching it, okay? And I remember at the end, 20 collegians expressing joy, very gifted and talented, using dance and worship, uh, using dance to worship and to tell a story. And so that reminded me, uh, I took a missions trip to Russia, to St. Petersburg, and I led, I led the team. And I wasn't on the body worship team, but we had a body worship uh, team where uh, we actually did this. And so we would do it at train stations, in, in forums, you know, in squares. We would do it in different places. And we always carried a CD player with us because of course, you know, we, we, we didn't have all that stuff we could carry around, so we needed something to be able to, to play the music in. And I remember we would do it, and one time we were invited to this uh, place where just hundreds of children were. And so imagine a gym where hundreds of children were, and the, the body worship team was doing the, the worship like they always did, and we played the CD, and the CD would do it, and they would do all this beautiful stuff. And I remember just sitting there watching, and at the beginning, all of a sudden, the CD froze. It had never done that before, in all of our times we've done it, right, on missions, but it froze. And what was interesting is I'm watching this, and the, the minute the music froze, so did the people, right? And the body worshipers looked like mannequins. They just stopped, like that Geico commercial, you know, where they just stopped, right? And so 
it was awkward. It seemed like an eternity when the guy came up, our sound guy, and he hit the you know, CD, and it went back to the beginning, right? And then they started from the beginning, okay? But thank goodness, right? It, it was from the beginning anyway. So they did it again, and as they were doing it, in the middle of it, right, when it was talking about Jesus, all of a sudden it froze again, and so did our people. They just froze, right? And they didn't know what to do. Their eyes looked around. They didn't know what to do. And what was interesting is that body worship, it, you know, amongst hundreds of people, completely failed. But the reason why it failed is because the music had stopped, right? The music that kept us on track of that body worship. Can you imagine everyone continuing to dance without the music? Can you imagine everyone just saying, well, I'm going to just do my own thing. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to body worship. I'm going to do all this stuff. It would look completely ridiculous. There'd be confusion. There'd be mess. That would not be a joyful experience to observe. The key is the music. It's the song that our team follows, without which that body worship fails. Christian, let me say we are the body of Christ. Our lives are to be given in worship to God. There is a body worship among us. Uh, here we see in verse 1, it says, be like-minded, one in love, one in spirit, one in purpose. A spiritually choreographed dance that we all as believers do together, and it's beautiful. Yet we find ourselves selfishly focusing on our own thing. We're concerned with our own interests. We dance our own dance. And there is mess and confusion and failure because we're, not go because we're going through the motions of worship without the music. We forget to focus on the one thing, that song that keeps us on track. And so what is that music? What is that song that we need without which we as a body of Christ, we fail? Well, verse 5 gives it to us. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The right attitude. Now, how important is attitude? Well, Chuck Swindoll, America's pastor, says it better than anyone. So let me read this. He says, friends, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. You may not like this, but attitude is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will cause a church to soar or to sink. It will be the difference between a happy home or a horror-filled one. It's attitude. And the remarkable thing is you have a choice every day regarding the attitude that you will embrace for that day. And oh, the difference it makes. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the tick of the clock. We cannot change that march toward death. We cannot change the fact that people will act a certain way toward us. We cannot change the inevitable. The, and that's so true. Do is play on the one thing we have, and that is our attitude. And that's so true. Jesus' attitude is that one thing that keeps us on track. It's the music. It's the song that we follow without which our body of Christ fails. So this morning, I want us to look at two paradoxes that are found in Jesus' attitude, okay? Two paradoxes. Now, what are paradoxes? Well, they're seemingly uh, absurd contradictions that when investigated further, prove to be profoundly true. They seem like contradictions on the surface, but yet when we look at it, it brings us a profound truth. Now, Jesus, the person, was truly a paradox. 
And his attitude was a paradox because to the world, it sounds absurd. But to us who look at the truth of the word of God, it becomes very profound. And so here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write this down. The way to move up is to move down. That's a paradox. The way to move up is to move down. Let's look in verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word nature means essential or unchangeable. So Jesus, here Paul is saying, was essentially and unchangeably by his very nature God. If we can use theological terminology, Jesus was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, okay? But, and here's the point, he did not seize on his status as God. He did not clutch his power and his glory. He did not grasp for what was rightfully his. Instead, Jesus humbled himself for all of humanity. And I want you to notice the steps that Jesus took in humility. Let's look in verse 7. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The steps that Jesus took in humility, I want you to notice them. As we look at these verses, we see five of those steps, and they're descending steps, okay? We see from sovereign God, we start there, right? He descends to become mortal man. And from mortal man, the Bible says, he descends to be a lowly servant. And from that lowly service, he condescends even further to willingly die. And from that point, he doesn't die just any death. He suffers the cross death, the worst of worst possible deaths. Now, imagine this in your head. The sovereign God of all of the universe condescends to die the cross death. That is ridiculous. That's absurd. As a matter of fact, skeptics all throughout history have underlined this as the reason why Christianity could not be true. That God himself would condescend. The term cross, and today uh, Christianity is a major religion, and so the cross is seen everywhere. But put yourself uh, back in the first century where the cross was highly offensive. The cross did not carry the connotation that we do today in popular culture. At that time, it was not uttered in polite society because only the lowest of the low was crucified this horrible death. The cross was seen as a curse because it was hideous and repulsive. It was seen as a curse by both Jew and Gentile. If you were hanging on a cross, you were truly cursed by man and by God. Why? Why would a sovereign God descend to the lowest, most humiliating death, death on a cross? Well, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What was that joy? Well, it was you. It was me. It's us. It's humanity. We were the joy that he was thinking about. We were the joy that he had set in his mind so that he endured the cross even with all of its shame. Why would God descend to the lowest point possible? Quite simply because he loved us. Amen? 
Jesus' attitude was expressed in his love for us. Look at that attitude and look at what that attitude did. Jesus saw our fallenness and our sinfulness. He knew our sinful nature would lead us to death, our sinful state. He knew that no other sacrifice other than an eternal sacrifice by an eternal God could pay for the price for sin eternally. So he condescended to come down from glory to us. He knew no other death but the cross would truly highlight man's depravity and inhumanity. So he willingly took on every part of that punishment for us. He knew no other death but the cross would make a public spectacle of this public sacrifice for all people. So he hung there as a billboard sacrifice to become a curse for us. You see, Jesus came down. Jesus descended because of his great love for us. We were his joy. Can I get an amen? Now, let me ask you this. Was the father pleased with the son's attitude? Let's look in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. God's response, because Jesus humbled himself, God the Father exalted him to the highest place. In God's economy, the way up is the way down, right? I want you to notice the opposite philosophy, where we see it in the life of Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, but who was Lucifer? Well, we know Lucifer as the greatest of God's creation, that God made him the special archangel, the special cherub of God, right? That all of God's creative energies went into focusing this being who would serve him. And this is what Lucifer uh, was like. In Isaiah 14, the prophet says it this way in verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations, because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of the assembly. I will ascend to the very top. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. I want you to notice Lucifer, who, when he fell, became Satan, right? The enemy of us all. Satan's philosophy was the way to move up is to keep pushing up. And I want you to notice the steps of, uh, of uh, Satan. Uh, and his steps were not descending, but ascending. Look at it. In Isaiah 14, he says, first of all, I will ascend. I will ascend to heaven. And then next from that, he says, I will raise my throne above. And then next, after that, he says, I will sit enthroned in the assembly. And from there, he says, I will ascend to the very top. And then lastly, he says, I will be like the most high. The way to move up is to seize your status, to clutch your power and glory, to arrogantly grasp for what should be yours. And what is God's response? I'm going to bring it all down. You see, when we live out selfish ambition or vain conceit in verse 3, when we look primarily to our own interests, verse 3, when we affirm that we're Christians but we live to please ourselves, we're not following Jesus we're following Satan. Let that sink in. You see, Jesus did not come to use people, but to love them. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Humble yourself of pride and love others. Now, the second one we want to look at is the way to live a full life is to become empty. The way to live a full life is to become empty. Let's look in verse 7. 
but made himself nothing. That phrase actually means to empty all. It has the idea of pouring out wine from a pitcher until there is not a drop left. You see, Jesus emptied himself when he was here on this earth. Now, you might ask, what did he empty himself of? Well, first, let me say it this way. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. There are cults, there are different uh, groups that will tell you that Jesus lost his deity when he became human. In order to become 100% human, Jesus lost his deity. But the Bible tells us in Philippians, he was by very nature God, essentially God, unchangeably God in his qualities. So Jesus did not lose his deity, the Bible says, but he did limit his deity. Let me give you an idea. So when Alexis was a child, and I always go back to Alexis being a kid because she's a teenager now, and I remember when she was a kid, her favorite, uh, very favorite thing to do with me was she loved to wrestle me, okay? So she would say, Dad, let's play WWE, okay? Let's wrestle, right? And sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, because it's so tiring. We, we do it for about an hour, okay? And sometimes I'd go, oh, because she wanted to do it for an hour. And, and I'd say, oh, but sometimes I, I'd go, okay, I'm ready, okay? I ate something, I'm ready to go, right? So what we do is we'd put mats and we'd put cushions and we'd put everything all over the house. And we would, we would make characters, right, that we would, and we would wrestle, okay? And she just got a kick out of it, being a little girl. She loved wrestling with me, okay? And the reason she loved it is because she always won, okay? That's funny. She always won. But do you know the truth is that I let her win? Because I have a glory in me, okay? And I limit that glory, okay? The dad glory. Do you understand? You understand what I'm saying? Because if I unleashed the glory of my dadness, I could kill my daughter, okay? We would be wrestling. I could take off her head. It, that, that got dark, but you know what I'm saying? I could take off her head easily, okay? She would not win if I decided to, to invest my full power, right? Right? You get that, right? If one of you came over to my house, right? If, if one of you came over and decided to wrestle me, like let's say Ben decided, hey, let's wrestle, okay? I would have to use a little bit more of my energy that I did with Alexis, <laughs> just a little, okay? But you understand, I, I have all of this reserve. See, that's Jesus. When he's here on this earth, at the Mount of Transfiguration, he gave us a glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory. He limited his power, his authority. So he didn't empty himself of that. What did Jesus empty himself of? Jesus emptied himself of his rights and his privileges as deity. Do you get that? Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his rights and privileges. Let me give you a couple. There's so many. He gave up his privilege of being worshipped as God. Revelation gives us a picture of heaven and how the 24 elders, how, how the beings, uh, the angelic hosts worship God day and night, right? That idea of heaven, that is what Jesus experienced before he came to this earth. Jesus had to empty himself of his glory in heaven. Imagine being worshipped and adored for all of that eternity and coming to earth and having to be what he was. He gave up his privilege. He gave up the privilege of communing with the Godhead face to face in fellowship. That God, that God the Son had God the Father and God the Spirit with them continually. And when he came to this earth, he had to give or empty himself of that. John 17 and verse 5, Jesus' father 
Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, Jesus longed to have back what he had poured out. His glory meant the his glory meant so much to him because he was God, and yet he gave it or he emptied himself of it for us. Not only that, he gave up his right to rule as God in authority. I don't know if you ever thought of that, but when Jesus came to this earth, what did he continue to say? He said, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. I'm not here for my will. I'm here for the Father's will. Yep, uh, Wilson gave a, a few weeks ago when they asked him when the end would come, and he says, I don't know when the end will come. Only the Father knows. See, he limited himself of his control of all things. And when uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when he, as, as fully God and fully man, had to take the judgment of the cross, he said, you know, if it were up to me, I'd let this cup pass, but not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus emptied himself of his authority. Augustine of Hippo, one of my favorite church fathers, said it this way, the creator of man became man, that he, the living bread, might be hungry, that he, the living fountain, might be thirsty, that he, the light of the world, might experience darkness, that he, the truth incarnate, might be condemned by liars, that he, the final judge, might be tried by corrupt people, that he, eternal life itself, might die on a cross. You see, that's the paradox of Jesus and what he emptied himself of. Now, Jesus emptied himself of his rights and privilege. What did he take on? Verse 7, taking on the very nature of a servant. And some translations use the word bondservant, and that's exactly what it was. Jesus became a bondservant, the lowest of all servants. Bondservants have no rights or privileges. A bondservant belongs to someone else. A bondservant lives to obey someone else. A bondservant does another's bidding, his master's bidding. And so the servant doesn't think about his rights or his privileges. The servant only thinks about one thing, and that is serving. And that is Paul's point here in understanding the attitude of Jesus. Jesus says it this way in Mark 10, verses 42. You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. In God's economy, if you want to be great in this world, if you want to have joy in your soul, if you want to be satisfied with a full life, then you need to empty yourself and you need to serve others. Can I get an amen? amen? Was God the Father pleased with his son's attitude? Let's look in verse 9. He gave him a name that is above every name. You know, in the ancient Near East culture, the name was so, so important. The name and meaning of a name was everything. And so having a good name all throughout life, being respected and revered and adored and honored at the city gate meant everything to a person. Proverbs 22 and verse 1, the wisdom literature says it this way, a good name is more desirable than great riches, a good reputation more esteemed than silver or gold. You see, Jesus' name, and let's look at God's response. Because Jesus emptied himself and served, God made his name the greatest of all. Let's look in verse 10. It says, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 11, and every tongue confess that this name, Jesus, Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That this name, Jesus, is associated with greatness and fullness. And it is synonymous with Lord, the word kurios, the same title that is given to God, right? That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is king of kings, and he is curios of curios. Here's the paradox I want you to get. Jesus emptied himself as a servant, then he is given the title of Lord to the fullest, right? He emptied himself as a servant and was given t- the title Lord to the fullest. You see, Jesus did not come to dominate people, but to serve them. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, to empty yourself of your rights and to serve others. You know, the purpose of this passage is very simple. It's such a complex, amazingly theological passage, but really it's quite simple. And Paul meant it to be simple. If Jesus could have, ha- if Jesus could have this attitude, if Jesus, who is God the Son, who is Almighty God, who is Lord of all, if Jesus could have this attitude of humility and service, and he could live it out for us, then surely you and I can do it as well. Amen? That's the message. Bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. In the quietness of your own heart, I want to ask, is there pride that you need to humble yourself of in order to love others? Is there something that God is picking at in your life? And he's saying you need to humble yourself in order to love the people that I've put in your path. Are there rights, are there privileges that you need to empty yourself of? Things that you think that you need to have. Can you let them go in order to serve others? As I invite the worship team to come up, I want to ask in the quietness of your heart, is the Lord asking you to follow his example? Is he asking you to quit living, stuffing yourself spiritually, hoarding all this stuff, stockpiling all this stuff? But is he saying, hey, I want you to go out and I want you to serve others and love others because in doing so, you're fulfilling what I've called you to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, and as we partake of communion, we who know you, that we would ask that we would be the same as you, that just as you gave your life for us, so we would give our lives for others, that as we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember the sacrifice that it took for you, and that, Lord, we would count the cost as well. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.